Amen. Awesome. I hope you joined in from home and uh, participated in that. We're getting ready now for communion again, if you missed the beginning. Because uh, listen, let's be honest, even when we're live streaming, I know some of y'all showing up late to the party, right? So don't forget, we're fixing to do communion. So if you need to go grab uh, some juice and some bread or cracker or whatever, um, you're going to be using to do that. Uh, that's That's where we're headed here in just a few minutes. So if you noticed in the absolute tsunami of press conferences that we're having lately, and let's be honest, there are a whole lot of press conferences. Am I right? In those press conferences, though, you never see the politician or whatever speaking alone. They've always got the people on the wings who are like the experts, right? Like nobody wants to address what's going on right now in the world alone. They're like, this guy said we should totally quarantine everybody. This guy said we shouldn't. Like they just want to throw those guys under the bus. So truly I thought about for our first week back to just church at home, I thought about having uh, like Blake and Lance and Neil and Monica up here, like just standing here the whole time, you know. Uh, but I kind of thought it would be a train wreck because we know Neil would never look up from his phone one time during the whole time. And then we know Blake would be so distracting because he'd just be standing there doing whatever it is that we don't know what he does. And then Monica would just be like handing me notes like, no, you should have said it this way because we all know she's in charge. Right. Uh, and, and we're thankful for that. And then Lance would be here just be like, dude, that was really good. I mean, nobody knows what you said, but we love you. And, you know, because he's always nice. So it would just end up being a distraction. But the reality is there's a confidence, I think, among these politicians to stand with somebody who's considered to be an expert in their field. And what I want us to do this morning before we come together to the Lord's table is I want us to look at who Jesus in the most defining moment in human history chose to have on his wings who did he choose to have on either side of him? So please grab your Bible this morning. And uh, and here's the deal. Uh, if you are using your phone to watch and you're like, but I usually read the Bible on my phone, we will have the text beneath here. But we are going to ask you to still say the creed out loud from wherever you are. It's okay. Maybe you're sitting in your car and people are going to look at you funny. It's all good. Let's say this together. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Awesome. Please turn to Luke 23. Luke 23. As we start to look at who are the secondary players on the scene here. We're coming to the crucifixion of Jesus. He's he's already in Luke 23 been tried and found guilty in this mock trial, this joke, this sham of a trial. He's already carried his cross. And, and Luke records that as Jesus is walking towards his own crucifixion, he's still ministering to people. He's still trying to, to speak blessings over those who are grieving his soon coming death. And, and, and we typically just see Jesus in this moment. As a matter of fact, in our own auditorium, there's one cross up near our baptistry. Usually when people are wearing a cross around their neck, they don't have three of them. They just have one cross around their neck. Usually we, we so focus on the cross of Jesus that we forget in his sovereign plan, there was not just one cross in this moment. 
There was not just one cross in this scene. And so we look at first just two verses, Luke 23, verses 32 and 33 is where we'll start. And it says this, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Again, I think if we rush too quick to miss the secondary players in this scene, we're going to lose part of what God intended. Because I love that in the greatest moment of human history, God orchestrated events so that Jesus would be surrounded by broken people at the end of their road, out of options, at their worst. And we don't even know much about these two guys. We just know that they're criminals. Some English translations call them thieves, although we don't know for sure that they were thieves. Some scholars think they were insurrectionists, like they were trying to rise up and and overthrow the Roman occupation of the day. They were like rebels or terrorists or whatever. And and the, the reality is we don't know for sure because the story isn't totally about them, right? And it could be that they really were just thieves. Like the, the Roman Empire was, was so strong in that day, they would execute somebody for just stealing. Like maybe he stole a loaf of bread like Jean Valjean in Les Mis. Like I don't, I don't know what the story was. All we know for sure is they're being executed on either side of Jesus because we serve a God who meets broken people in the midst of their worst. It's the perfect scene For Jesus to be surrounded, not by the experts, not by the religious leaders, but by criminals who are being executed. And and they're being executed in this very public way, this very uh, public forum at at this place called the skull, right? The the place of the skull or, or, or Golgotha, which means place of the skull, or Calvary which is Latin for the word skull, because apparently the hill where Jesus died, if you look at it from a distance, is sort of like a cliff, and apparently it kind of looks like a skull. I don't know. I've never seen it. I've never been to the Holy Land. Really hope to go one day. But at this point, I'm just hoping to go to, like, Chick-fil-A, because quarantine. But, like, I've never seen this, but we're told that it looks like a skull, and how fitting, because it was a place that was just known for death. And it was along a major thoroughfare. A lot of people walked by there. That's how the Romans always did their executions. They wanted them to be public, to be super shaming, so that people would walk by and be like, I don't want to do whatever that dude did. I don't want to get in that kind of trouble. And so this public shaming moment, the Son of God hangs with two criminals. We keep reading in the text that Jesus speaks this over the people who are present in a prayer. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So we've got the two thieves on either side, and then we've got that one cross in the middle who's praying a prayer of forgiveness over everybody involved in this horrible moment. What are the soldiers doing? It says that they gambled for his clothes by throwing dice or by casting lots. And they they wanted, and this is a popular guy, maybe I can get his garments and they'll be worth money one day. Or this will be a cool trinket to save about the day, whatever. But that's how 
little they think of Jesus and how little they're taking this moment and the weight of it seriously. Verse 35, now we see the other players in the play. It's the crowd. They watched. They just stood as spectators. And the leaders, the reference here is to the religious leaders, the religious rulers, they scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. And I, like, I just imagine them doing air quotes when they said this. Oh, he's God's chosen one. You know, they're, they are straight up mocking Jesus in this moment. Well, now the soldiers stop uh, throwing their dice for a minute to get involved in it. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a, a drink of sour wine. And they called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The same theme that the leaders are calling out. Save yourself, save yourself. Verse 38, a sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. And he was. And he still is. But that sign was mockery. They didn't mean that. They didn't really recognize him as king. And then verse 39. This is just so crazy. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and P.S. us too while you're at it. He, he's hanging on the cross and he's mocking Jesus. And, and maybe because we've never seen a person crucified, we don't get the magnitude of this text. And I want to be cautious not to be super gory or gross or whatever. I know there's kids watching, but here's the deal about being crucified. So a person would have nails driven through their wrists or possibly part of their hands and through their feet. Typically after being beaten, then they're laid on this rough wood and then the cross is lifted and their weight falls onto those nails. But as they are hung, their chest pulls up against this weight. And it it disables the lungs to be able to fill with air. And so when people died of crucifixion, they typically didn't bleed to death. Typically, they suffocated. They couldn't breathe. Because in order to breathe, they had to push with all of their strength on those nails. And lift themselves up enough to get a breath. Just to collapse down again under the weight. If you've been around church for a while or if you know the Bible, you know that the soldiers came to break Jesus' legs because it was almost going to be Sabbath. But they didn't because he was already dead. So historians tell us that sometimes people would hang on a cross for days. Struggling to get a breath. And so eventually... Those Roman soldiers would break their legs so they couldn't lift up and get a breath. And here's why that's so important. This criminal went through all that agony and all that breath, all that that pain rather, to get a breath just so he could mock Jesus. Just so he could lash out at Jesus. What a wounded dude. Can you imagine Like how hurt he has to be to have that much hate in his heart. To go to that much effort just to curse at somebody. 
how wounded must he be? How much pain must he have endured at some season of his life? And the fact is, I think we're seeing a lot of that same thing in our culture right now. None of us are being faced with crucifixion. But what we see right now is we do have some pressure on us. And what's happening is a lot of our culture is just lashing out at one another. We have unhealed wounds that we don't know what to do with. And so the way that we deal with them is often by letting our hurts hurt other people. This this criminal is dying. He's getting what could be his final breath. And he uses that breath to yell angry insults at Jesus. How painful. Well, now the criminal on the other side of Jesus, he goes through that pain and that effort to get some breath in his lungs. And he speaks up on behalf of Jesus. Verse number 40, the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? Oh, and this is so crucial. Verse 41, we deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. We just sang a song that called Jesus innocent perfection. See, the thing that these two criminals had in common, they're both guilty. And the thing that set the cross of Christ apart from any cross that ever existed is it held an innocent man. Truly innocent. And that's not any of our story. We're not innocent. When we stand before the holy perfection of a glorious, spotless God, we're guilty. The question isn't, are we guilty or are we innocent? None of us identify with the middle cross. The question is, what do we do with our guilt? Has it made us bitter and angry? Or do we see ourselves in a desperate, broken spot where we cry out for mercy? That's what the second criminal does. Verse 42, he said, man, these nine words, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me. That is the prayer of a desperate Man, Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I promise you, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This man, this desperate prayer, he calls out, Jesus, remember me. This is a prayer that maybe you've prayed before. Maybe you've prayed it lately. God, please don't forget the situation I'm in, because if you don't show up and save the day, it's lost. I don't know how these bills are going to get paid. I don't know how I'm going to get my job back. I don't know how our marriage is going to survive this. I have messed things up, and I don't know how to fix it. Jesus, remember me. And for you, maybe you've prayed a prayer far more eloquent than that, because maybe you've been around church, and maybe you know a lot of theology, and maybe you know a lot of verses. This guy prayed a really simple prayer. And Jesus heard him, and Jesus promised him, Eternity in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. I want to talk about paradise for a minute because it's amazing. So historians and archaeologists have told us a lot about this place called the skull, this place called Golgotha, this place called Calvary. 
What we know about Calvary is it was not just a place where executions took place. It was a landfill. It was a garbage heap. It was a dump. It's where the trash was all thrown out. There would have been flies everywhere and a horrible, terrible odor. It was a dump. Some of us were together in Guatemala a couple years ago where we went to a large cemetery and then we walked over to the edge and we looked down at the biggest dump I've ever seen. It just continued to go as far as the eye could see, it seemed. And man, I, I think that's a glimpse of how awful this place was. This place that was a mess. And again, not, not to be too graphic, but the, the historians tell us that because a crucifixion was so public, like I mentioned before, and because it was a shame-based culture, usually loved ones weren't there to stand with their criminal loved one as they died. And usually they would not come and claim the body of their loved one. History tells us that typically when a person died on a cross, a Roman soldier would take their body down and throw them in that landfill. That gross landfill was really a mass grave. And here's the authority and the power of the grace of God. Jesus, through a word, brought paradise to a garbage dump. He brought life to a mass grave. That's who Jesus is. How possibly can we consider paradise a garbage heap? Because that's what Jesus does. He loves to walk into the mess and turn it into something beautiful. He loves to create beauty from ashes That's his story. That's his character. That's his nature. That's the story of the gospel. Jesus doesn't come into good lives who are mostly put together and just help them get to the finish line of faith. He comes into the complete dumpster fire of our situation. And he offers paradise. Paradise that we can't earn. You realize that criminal never did a single good deed for Jesus. He never helped feed a hungry person. He never cared for a widow. He never even said any great, eloquent theological thing. And yet paradise became his. Because in desperation, he turned to Jesus. And the power of God is so glorious that through the shedding of his blood, he offers forgiveness of the worst kinds of sin. Through faith in his mercy. The simple prayer, Jesus, remember me. And he's the God who remembers. And that's why we come to this moment where we do this in remembrance of him. We come to the Lord's table to remember the God who remembers. We remember the one who remembers us, who enters into our broken situation and reveals paradise as our promise, as our hope, as our destiny. We remember him. What we know about the the teachings of Jesus is that he broke bread 
And he was painting a picture saying, my body is going to be broken for you. And he took the cup because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. He said, this is a symbol of how my blood's going to be poured out to wash away your sins, to make a way for you to enter paradise. And the, the scriptures tells, tell us that as we come together to remember his broken body, to remember his shed blood, that we're supposed to examine ourselves. We're supposed to make sure we really believe in him first and foremost. And, and I believe the scriptures want us to have gone public with that. And so here at Temple, you don't have to be a member of our church. If you're watching online and, and you want to participate in this, you don't have to be a member of our church. You don't have to believe our denomination and all those kind of things. Listen, we believe if you've placed your faith in Jesus and been born again, and if you've made that public by being baptized, then we invite you to join with us in this moment. If that's not something you've done, then we encourage you that as we're going to partake in just a moment, would you reflect? Would you examine about what Jesus has done for you? And if you don't know for sure that paradise is yours, then we encourage you. We plead with you. Would you please click the link that says, can we talk? Because we would love to have a phone call or a text conversation or a face chat where we can just talk about what it means to know that Jesus has made a way. That Jesus has entered the landfill and made a way for paradise. We want you to know that that's your story. We want you to know that that's your promise. So would you please reach out so we can have that conversation? If that is your story, you, you do believe that you've placed your faith in Jesus and you have been baptized, then, then, then God calls us through the teachings of the Apostle Paul to examine ourselves. Make sure there's not junk between you and God that you need to confess or, or get right or lay down or, or ask for strength in. And we're going to do this a little different because of the setting that we're in. What we're going to do is I'm, I'm going to pray a prayer of reflection. And in that, I'm going to give thanks to Jesus for his broken body and for his shed blood that saves us from our sins. And after that prayer is over, the band is going to be coming up as I'm praying. And, and they're going to lead us in a beautiful hymn that talks about Jesus paying it all for us to be made right with God. And as the, the band leads us in this great song, at any point in time during that song, when you're ready, go ahead and partake of the bread and the cup whenever you're ready. You, if you're alone, you can do that whenever you want to. As a couple, I'd encourage you to wait for one another. If you're with a family, uh, take it together as a family whenever you're ready, anytime during the song. But right now, as the band's coming up, I want to lead us in a prayer of reflection, in a prayer of examination, and in a prayer of gratitude. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your son to bring paradise to us. God, thank you for walking into the garbage heap of sin and not sparing your own son so that we could know that paradise can be ours. And we reflect and we remember because we are remembered. We remember what you've done because, God, you're the God that remembers us. You remember us. Thank you. And what we acknowledge in, in kind of the holiness of this moment, the, the sanctity or, or the sacredness of this moment, is we remember that our remembrance is really costly. We acknowledge that that the physical body of the Son of God in the flesh was broken 
for our salvation. God, we acknowledge that you allowed the blood of the spotless, sinless Lamb of God to be poured out on our behalf to make a way for us. Thank you. Thank you for the hope of paradise. Father, we declare this morning, we know that we're not innocent. We're guilty. But in repentance, we call out and say, please remember us as we remember you. In Jesus' name, amen. This time we're going to respond in worship. And whenever you're ready, go ahead and partake of the cup and the bread. Let's worship together.